Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Samantha Prince, Associate Professor of Lawyering Skills and Entrepreneurship at Penn State Dickinson Law. We'll be discussing her article, The AB5 Experiment, Should States Adopt California's Worker Classification Law, which is forthcoming in the American University Business Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Samantha, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Samantha, I'm excited to talk with you about an issue that is very much in the news. It's very much in the public eye right now, which is the classification of workers as either employees or contractors. Could you introduce that distinction? What's the significance of worker classification and why does it matter to both workers and to companies that they work for? As things stand right now, worker classification greatly impacts all workers' lives. It also impacts the businesses and the businesses' competitors of those that hire workers and how they classify them. And it impacts our governments too, which I'll talk about as well. Just some background, uh, ever since the late 1800s, everyone who works in the United States has been classified as either an employee or an independent contractor. And if a worker is an employee, they are entitled to certain protections and benefits, such as unemployment compensation, workers' compensation, Uh, minimum wage, overtime, anti-discrimination protection, protections under the uh, National Labor Relations Act, employers that provide benefits, typical benefits like health benefits, retirement benefits, they only provide them to employees. So here when you see this viewpoint or this lens that employees get all of these things and independent contractors don't get any of those things. And from a tax perspective, employers pay half of their employees' Medicare and Social Security taxes, and they do withholding, and they remit taxes on their employees' behalf. Whereas with regard to the independent contractors, they don't have any of that. And as a matter of fact, they also have to pay the full amount of their Social Security and Medicare taxes. They don't have somebody else paying half of that for them. Now, granted, they do get a deduction for that other half, Uh, but it's still, it's money paid out. So the effects on the worker are overall impactful positively for the employee and and negatively from the standpoint of the independent contractor. And most people look at this worker classification issues from that lens only, but I would throw in here also that classification is impactful for the marketplace overall, especially when you look at it as uh, hiring businesses and their competitors. So those that hire workers as employees pay that additional tax, social security, Medicare, they incur more costs associated with the benefits they provide to have those employees. But conversely, if their workers were classified as independent contractors, that would save them a lot of money. So saving this money can be huge and provide a competitive edge for companies who hire contractors versus employees. And from the government standpoint, you know, there's a financial aspect as well. It's been shown that without withholding taxes and the remittance that employers do, the IRS and state revenue agencies actually take in less tax money. In addition to that, we also have labor agencies, which, of course, monitor this and deal with the misclassification issues, and it can be very time-consuming for them. 
Misclassification issues have been around for a long time, but in some ways, your paper explains how this is a story of technology accelerating those issues. And I remember a few years ago when I took my first Uber ride, it seemed almost like a magical experience. I had this app in a device in my pocket that could bring a car to me and it would take me somewhere. That was a magical thing that's more ubiquitous now. And there are lots of different apps that do similar things. So technology has changed in the last few years. And you talk about that in the paper. Could you talk about how those changes have created economic conditions or new challenges when it comes to worker classification? So we're seeing more people entering the app-based economy or gig work, as some people call it. We're seeing more people doing that sort of work as their main or sole source of income. And one of the predominant reasons for this shift is that opportunity to work when one wants, to create one's own hours, to have that flexibility. And that can be important, not just from a personal preference standpoint, but it may be a need, Uh, family, other obligations that may limit someone's ability to have a regular work schedule. And one of the challenges faced by our governing bodies, and I use that term to encompass federal, state, and cities, is that balancing the worker's need or desire for flexibility with protecting their rights. Under our current system, it comes down to how do we classify these workers? And technology has, as you point out, compounded the challenges in this area. And one of the problems we have is that folks who are legitimately independent contractors, they control their own economic destiny, so to speak. And I won't get into applying a test, but let's just say they pass most of the tests to be considered independent contractor. Then we have these folks, other folks who are told that they're independent contractors by hiring businesses, particularly what we see now with the app-based businesses. And the thing is, though, they're reliant upon these businesses for a variety of economic reasons, and such businesses control them in a way that would, under many tests, classify them as employees, even though the businesses are treating them as independent contractors. And they're doing so, why? Economic reasons, but it really impacts these individuals from the standpoint of all of the protections we just talked about a minute ago. And like I said, this is just showing up a lot more now in the app-based businesses uh, that we're seeing coming out today. Your paper talks about a federalism story in many ways. The federal government has methods or different agencies within the federal government have tests and methods for classifying workers. And states, of course, also have their own methods for classifying workers. And you mentioned some of the tests that are available. So maybe to introduce that to the listeners, just how do states approach worker classification? Are they all of one mind for the most part? Or is there a lot of divergence in our federal system? So that's a great question, because we do have quite a bit of divergence uh, across the states. The states use a variety of different tests to determine worker classification. It's not just the difference in tests that are being used, but also that they're using them for different reasons. So many states use what's called the ABC test, and, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But that test presumes that someone's an employee, unless the hiring business can prove three elements. So it's a default mechanism to be considered an employee under this ABC test. The problem is that states use different tests for different things. So you may have a state that uses the ABC test for unemployment comp purposes, but not for determining employee status for purposes of tax withholding or minimum wage or overtime laws. And we don't see this just at the state level. We see this kind of difference in applicability across our federal agencies as well. The DOL, Department of Labor, the United States Department of Labor, uses a test called the Economic Realities Test for FLSA purposes. The IRS uses uh, different factors 
that align more with looking at control. Even at the federal level, we see different tests trying to determine who's employee for their own particular purposes. But getting back to the states, when it comes to the app-based workers, some cities and states are establishing ordinances and laws that specifically address those workers. But most are still trying to fit them into this traditional worker classification regime which does not seem to work really well. And that's exactly what California has been trying to do. You mentioned California, which is the focus of the paper. What have been some developments on the worker classification front in California and what prompted those developments? The past two years have been quite interesting. Just to give some background, in 1989, California started using a lengthy factor test for determining a worker's classification. And this test came from the Borrello case. And so it it became called the Barillo test. And then in 2018, the Supreme Court of California applied the ABC test to classify workers in the Dynamex case. And because there was an immediate confusion among businesses and workers created by the Dynamex opinion, members of the California legislature felt compelled to act fast in an attempt to provide what they thought was actually going to be clarity. So in September 2019, the California legislature enacted a new worker classification law, and it's called AB5. That was its number. And that went into effect in January of 2020. And AB5 uses the ABC test, okay? And one that is just, it is modified a little bit, but it's similar to the one that other states use. It provides that presumption of employee status. However, California expanded the ABC test applicability to cover all of California's labor laws, minimum wage, overtime, workers' comp unemployment comp. And this is sweeping, but it makes sense rather than only using it for portions of the labor laws. But it's not just the scope of the test that's different. It is the unusual approach that California took with regard to who is tested and how. For instance, there were numerous exemptions to the use of the new test, and those workers were still going to be tested under that former Barillo test. So you have these carve-outs or these exemptions from AB5. And if you're exempt from that ABC test, which AB5 is now implementing, uh, then you're going to default to being tested back under the old testing regime. So now you have this worker classification law that's broad in scope, but it's selective in which test applies to which people. And that makes it confusing. So more workers and businesses spoke out as they did. More amendments to the worker classification law came. And in September 2020, a law that pretty much nobody talks about, AB 2257, was enacted. And this law basically rewrote AB 5. But what it really did from a key aspect was it expanded the number of exemptions to 109. I list those 109 exemptions as an appendix to my article. If a worker is listed in that appendix, they will be tested under the old Barillo test. And so I call California's AB5 and its progeny an experiment because there's a lot of the let's see what sticks to the wall testing that appears to be going on here, as well as a lot of worker business and political pushback. Worker and employer pushback against AB5. And it sounds like there's been a continued addition of various exemptions, so various carve-outs from the California ABC test. In general, what have been some of the criticisms that workers and employers have had? I also assume that there have been some praises and workers who might like the test, or, or perhaps I'm wrong on that. But what have been some of the reactions and the motivations, the reasons behind those reactions? You're right. There's definitely people in favor and people against. You hear the people who are against more often. But 
One of the biggest things is this focus on the fact that there are so many exemptions. And these are as a result of the California legislature trying to evolve this law into something that's workable. And so when AB5 first came out, freelancers were a big group of people that really spoke out against it. Freelance writers, photojournalists, photographers, they were really unhappy with the law because there was some phrasing in the law that said that if a worker or a freelancer provides 35 items to one hiring business, then that's going to qualify them as being an employee. And so freelancers really spoke out as that being a big problem for them as independent contractors who do their own thing and choose who they want to submit to and how often. And they didn't like that. You have other industries as well, the trucking industry. Uh, Some of the trucking industry is in fact in favor of the way AB5 is structured, specifically like the port trucking industry, whereas other trucking industries, not so much. And the music industry, they spoke out as well about how disruptive AB5 was going to be. And as a result, AB2257 provided for many music industry exemptions to the ABC test there. Overall, many workers really spoke out too. And it wasn't just uh, big groups like that. You had a lot of individuals who spoke out. Court reporters, interestingly, spoke out saying that they worked for several agencies in order to fill their calendars. And they didn't want to be employees of any one of those agencies. They liked having that flexibility of deciding who to work for, when, and for how long. A big problem arose when hiring businesses announced they were no longer going to use freelancers who are residents of California. So this is something that I don't think anybody really foresaw. Their thought was rather than use workers that might come under the purview of AB5 that might produce employee status instead of independent contractor status or just the overall uncertainty. And so you had folks like Vox Media come out and say, you know what, we're not going to hire California freelancers anymore because we frankly just don't want to deal with this law. And so they started using freelancers from other states that are not subject to California's law. And so I think that was one of the unintended consequences that you see here. But AB5 has also been criticized as legislation that's detrimental to women, too. Women, most statistically, are the caregivers of the household, typically, whether it's your children, your parents, your grandparents, the caregivers, right? And so they rely more on alternative, flexible work arrangements. And so women who are unable to satisfy requirements of those traditional working arrangements with a regular schedule would be some in some cases classified as employees under California's worker classification law and could suffer some harm as a result of trying to keep these uh, working relationships and the difficulty inherent in being able to do so. So that's a problem. But really, Andrew, I'm sure you've heard of it. The most famous and loudest reaction to AB5 came from Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash because their drivers were going to be considered employees under this new law. And in fact, when AB5 was enacted, it was referred to in the media as California's gig economy law that was designed to reclassify those uh, rideshare and delivery drivers as employees. And after AB5 went into effect, there was a court in California that held that Uber drivers were in fact employees under AB5. But as I'm sure you're aware, Uber, DoorDash, and Lyft created a proposition for the ballot last November, Prop 22, 
that asked California residents to decide its driver's fate under the California worker classification law. And the residents of California decided that rideshare and delivery app drivers are independent contractors and not employees. So even though the court came down and said, yes, your drivers are going to be considered employees, Prop 22 usurped that. And now they're not. Now they're going to be independent contractors. In some ways, my experience a few years with Uber the first time as a a novelty has come full circle where before it puts some stress on worker classification and now it's in a position to maybe alter the laws on worker classification. You talk about California doing an experiment, carving out different exemptions, listening to different industries and groups of workers, uh, listening to Uber, DoorDash, and Lyft and the voters as well in crafting its worker classification laws. What does this experiment teach other states or what does it teach us about experimental federalism more generally? That's a great question. So there's a lot of takeaways that we can take from what's going on in California with all of this. There's a lot that can be learned from this experiment. For states that don't have a similar ballot kind of system with regard to propositions, those states may look and see that the court in California held that ABC test classifies Uber drivers as employees. And so if they are looking to regulate or classify app-based work through the use of the ABC test, they can find some precedent there. But broadly, policymakers look to either learn from or imitate other states. And California is a well-known first mover in innovative legislation. They're huge and they're groundbreaking in a lot of different areas. And so when policymakers look to imitate a state like California, you know, they will adopt laws more quickly and not look to the results of the experiment. But it's the states that are not looking to imitate, the ones that are more apt to want to learn from the experience that I'm focusing more on here, looking at how can we learn from what's going on in California before deciding on whether or not to adopt the law or something that's similar to their law. And that learning process takes longer than to imitate. It's going to take some time because you need to stand back and assess it the successes, the failures, which can only be ascertained from this passage of time. Adoption is more likely to occur when a state's experiment is successful, but because California's law is so complex, it may be difficult to discern the successes from the failures here. And so we have policymakers that can consider all of this. They can sit back, they can watch what's going on in California to basically gather information. What are the results of what's going on in California? How are the people reacting? What can we learn from what we see in California? And they can glean this information from a variety of places, right? They can get it from the media. They can get it from social media. California should have some statistics that they can provide if they're so willing to help other states make decisions in this regard. And one thing that I point out or or use in my paper is what professors Brian Galley and Joe Leahy in their Laboratories of Democracy, Policy, Innovation, and Decentralized Governments article Uh, policymakers are going to want to consider the relevancy of California's law to its own state. Also look at the ability to ascertain that information with regard to successes and failures and look at the costs. What are the costs to adopt this law or to enforce it and to educate their residents and the businesses about this law? Really important to states that don't have a lot of money. What are the costs associated with adopting a law that has 109 exemptions? How relevant is that to their state is 
a state that doesn't have the type of economy and the diverse set of workers from, I say diverse set, I'm talking industry-wide set of workers, how does that look to a state that doesn't have that? Do they need all of those exemptions or can they use the law without those exemptions? So what is the relevancy? How much is it going to cost? Is it too expensive to try and administer this? And then when you talk about experimental federalism, it teaches us a lot and provides great benefits, right? States that lack resources to do their own research to try new laws. They can free ride on other states that do have those resources. They can ascertain whether the costs justify the adoption of the law. Uh, We have businesses that operate in multiple states that are going to crave some sort of uniformity, but politics always enter into the mix. You cannot look at this in a vacuum. Even if another state's law appears to be successful, that definition of success can basically lie in the eye of the beholder. So for instance, policymakers who are ideologically different may not be interested in another state's law, even if it seems to be successful. So you're always going to have the politics entering into this process. If state legislators were to come to you and say, we're thinking of updating our worker classification laws, what advice do you have for us? What would you tell them? I think there's a lot of great ideas floating around, right? I don't think any state has actually nailed this problem yet. Uh, I would encourage policymakers to be innovative. Find a way that protects workers while preserving their independence for those that are truly independent. I would encourage policymakers to think outside the box that we're in right now. Seek to not just look for ways to tackle the classification issue, but maybe even consider broadening the applicability of the safety net protections that are only afforded employees right now so that they can cover independent contractors as well. I mean, during the COVID-19 pandemic, unemployment compensation was made available for independent contractors, uh, not just employees. So we've seen that kind of acknowledgement that's important. So why not pursue ways to continue to cover independent contractors for some of these other protections? that are so important. Why does it need to be this dichotomous classification between you're an employee, so you deserve the anti-discrimination protection. You deserve the ability to group and talk about your wages. This kind of stuff really should be broadened as we have more people in our workforce that are working independently as well. But overall, policymakers should really be willing to experiment because we all learn from it. We learn not just from the successes, but we learn from those failures, just like anybody who's doing any kind of experiment. And it's only through this experimental process will we really truly be able to solve this problem and become more educated and apt to really address this, not just as a classification issue, but as a broader issue of making sure all people are protected. And so in my article, there are numerous approaches there. Policymakers can look to those. They can modify what other states, and and I've mentioned before, there are cities also taking uh, a stance here. Look at what they're doing, maybe see if it looks like it would apply or it's working. If we're going to keep up with technology and the changing workforce, our laws really need to keep up too. And knowing what's already out there is going to be key to determining which way to move forward. What is the IRS using? What is DOL using? What is California using? What is New Jersey using? What are all of these different states using? What is New York City using? What is Seattle using? How are all of these things going to come together so that somebody can actually make an assessment as to which way to move forward or what's best for their state as far as moving forward? 
And so I'm currently working on an article that's going to bring together a sort of up-to-date compendium of the different tests used, because I think it's really going to be helpful in trying to figure out how to move forward. Are there any key takeaways you'd like listeners to have from this conversation or from the paper? Overall, understanding of the importance of this area is super important. I would say what I'd like the reader to take away from this article is that worker classification is not an easy issue to tackle. It's clearly evidenced by California's most recent attempt at it that it's not easy. While policymakers are looking for answers, they look to what other states are doing. And because California is a first mover in so many areas, Looking to California for a resolution to the worker classification problem seems to make sense, but maybe not. Policymakers should do what they can to learn from other states like California. There are certain key considerations, though, that policymakers should consider when deciding on whether or not to adopt that California's worker classification law, that relevancy, the ability to obtain that information, and what the costs are going to be. But Like I said, even when considering or weighing all of these factors, ideological differences or similarities will likely come into play regardless. We cannot escape the politics of it all. Our guest today has been Samantha Prince, Associate Professor of Lawyering Skills and Entrepreneurship at Penn State Dickinson Law. We've discussed our article, The AB5 Experiment, Should States Adopt California's Worker Classification Law, which is forthcoming in the American University Business Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Samantha, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having me. This this was a great experience. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.